Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody joining us online. We're glad you could be here with us today. I've always been a fan of movies, you know, and, and these days, I don't have a lot of time, but when I sit down to watch a movie, it's usually just a popcorn flick, something easy that I can just zone out, kind of escape the craziness of the world for a couple of hours. But there was a time in my life where I didn't want to watch movies. I wanted to watch cinema, you know, like it was a little, it was more than a little pretentious, but I wanted to watch movies that were serious movies, you know, movies that we would look at the themes and then we'd analyze the message and the commentary they were making. We'd look at the, the, the mezzanine and we'd look at all the composition of the shots and, you know, and these were not happy movies, by the way. They were oftentimes very dramatic, very heavy, oftentimes sad movies. It's not what you wanted to do for a good time on an afternoon. But that's what serious people did, so I wanted to do that. And during this phase, one of my favorite serious tragedies was a movie called The Wizard of Oz. And you may think you know the story. You probably do. It's the familiar story of a woman, a marginalized woman, whose sister is tragically killed in a construction accident because of the negligence of a teenage girl, right? <laughs> And to make matters worse, this delinquent child steals a priceless family heirloom and runs off into the countryside, which leaves our protagonist to chase her down and try to retrieve the last vestiges of her family history from this thief. And the whole movie comes to a head when our beautiful enchantress meets this delinquent child in this showdown, and that's where the tragedy comes into play because our hero dies a watery demise. She suffers, and this child gets away scot-free and is celebrated even, and the whole movie is just one bitter pill. It's this tragedy. It's a commentary on the cruel injustices of living in a cold and uncaring munchkin land, you know? At least that's how you view the movie if you think the Wicked Witch is the main character. If you think Dorothy is the main character, you probably watched a very different movie, much more happy movie, probably a lot more easygoing, probably put a smile on your face. And it just goes to show you that whether you're talking about a movie or a novel or whatever, you want to make sure you understand who the main character of the story really is. Because it's going to have far-reaching ramifications on how you view the entirety of the rest of the story. And that's true of the gospel story as well. That's what we're talking about this morning in part two of our series called The Good News. It's a series we started last week, and, and we figured, you know, the last two years, we've had a lot of bad news come over us over the last few years. Let's, let's start the year off with some good news, like the good news, the gospel. Let's just take some time and just live in that story of God and his victory and what he's done for us. And like we said earlier, the gospel is one of those stories. You want to make sure you understand who the main character really is. We're going to be unpacking that this morning in, in the book of Romans chapter 1. So if you have your Bible with you, why don't you open up to Romans chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow along on the screen behind me, or you can download the FCC Mammoth app to your mobile device. Tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our sermon notes tool along with all of our passages pulled up, ready for you to engage with, take notes on, and get the most out of our time together today. So, the gospel who is the gospel story really about? That's where our passage picks up in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, 
the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. That's a key phrase we're going to come back to. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. In case you missed who we were talking about, his name's right there, Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is the gospel, and that word, by the way, if you're not familiar, it literally means good news. This is the good news of God. That's the point of origin. We talked about that last week. And this good news is regarding or concerning or about his son, namely Jesus Christ, the son of God. So that's the answer to our question. Who is the main character of the gospel? Who is the hero of the story? It's Jesus. And we actually get a little summary statement of the gospel story, the good news, in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, it says that he, you know, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. And that first phrase, as to his earthly life, is kind of an odd little phrase that we don't want to just gloss over. Because that's not typically how we talk of people. You know, as to your earthly life, this is who you are. You're an accountant that works at this firm or whatever. That's an odd phrase. And it sort of infers that he had a life outside of his earthly existence. Which is exactly what we read if we were to look at other books of the New Testament, like the book of John chapter 1 or the book of Colossians chapter 1. We read that the Son of God is co-equal, He is co-divine, He is co-eternal alongside God the Father, that He is divine in every way. And that divine Son of God, He made His existence on earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and something we call the Incarnation. It's, it's the Christmas event that we just celebrated a few weeks back where God has made flesh and made His dwelling among us. God with us, heaven and earth, inseparably enfleshed and, and tied together in this person. It's in Jesus, we encounter God himself. That's a pretty great part of the good news. God came to us. But the good news, the gospel, isn't that just God came to be with us. It's also that he did something pretty remarkable while he was with us. And that's what verse 4 gets into. It talks about his resurrection from the dead, which would imply that he first had to die, right? I mean, that would be the order of things. And in fact, Jesus of Nazareth did die. He was crucified on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. He was righteous, but he died as someone who was accused and guilty. He was wrongfully executed as a blasphemer, and someone who was you know, betraying the, the kingdom of Rome. But when God looked upon his life in judgment, he found no charge. He found no guilt. He found no sin. In fact, what he found was somebody who was actually genuinely righteous, someone who did not deserve to suffer death. And so he raised him back to life through the power of the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of holiness, as our passage refers to him. He raised Christ back to life and validated him, vindicated him, as if to say, no, everything he claimed to be and say and do, that was true. This guy's legit. He really is the Son of God. He really is victorious. He really is the pathway to me. The resurrection was sort of God's divine stamp of approval on Jesus. And that's the good news. God came to be with us in Jesus. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. He was raised back to life in victory over death. The kingdom of evil has been overthrown, and someday Christ will return to complete that victory and make his kingdom unquestionably known in this universe. It's a great story. It's good news. But do you notice who didn't get mentioned a whole lot in that good news story? 
It's us, you and me. When we talk about the gospel, you know, I may ask you, what is the gospel? We might come up with a lot of different but similar explanations. Well, the gospel is that my sins are forgiven. Or the gospel is that I now have eternal life and I can get to go to heaven. Or, you know, my relationship with God is repaired and it's whole. And all of that is absolutely true. But all of that is something we receive, a benefit we receive, because of the gospel story. The good news itself is not that we get all this great stuff. The good news is that Jesus Christ died, was raised, and is victorious. He's the main character. We're just the beneficiaries of his story. It's kind of like the relationship that Shaquille O'Neal has with his six children. I love Shaq. He's, the more I watch him and learn about him, the more I love that guy. Uh, Shaq, you know, he's a basketball Hall of Famer, had many, many successful seasons, but he was able to turn that success and his salary, leverage that in a way that he became a very intelligent, very savvy businessman. And today he's worth somewhere in the neighborhood of about $400 million. That story of his success is very interesting. It's very inspiring and check, encourage you to check it out sometime. But it's a story of which he is unquestionably the central and main character. It's the story of his success. And he reminds his six children of this all the time. In a recent interview that he did, he's quoted as saying, my kids kind of get upset with me, but I always remind them, we ain't rich, I'm rich. <laughs> and that's not supposed to be some arrogant thing that he like holds over their heads, but rather it's, it's emphasizing a lesson he's trying to teach his children. My success is not your success. You have to go make your own way. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to study. You're going to have to come up with a business plan. If you pitch me an idea for your business and it's good, I'll invest. If it stinks, I won't. They won't be handed anything because we ain't rich. I'm rich, as Shaq says. And that's sort of how it is with the gospel, honestly. This is the story of Jesus and his work and his victory, his triumph, his resurrection, we are the beneficiaries of that, just as Shaq's kids benefit from his wealth. They still live in his house. They still get to go on family vacations with his money. They still wear nice clothes and have luxury items because of his success. But it is his success. They just get to benefit because of their relationship to him. And in the same way, this is the story of Jesus' victory, but we get to benefit because of our relationship to him of our faith. And that's the way God designed it. You see, when we talk about the gospel, we want to make sure we understand who the main character of the story really is, because it's going to have some ramifications on how we see the rest of the story, just like in the case of the Wizard of Oz. In fact, here's how it plays out in the story of the good news. If we mistakenly assume we are the central focus of God's gospel, then we're also going to become the focus of our worship and our faith. And that's what we call idolatry, church. It may seem like a slight distinction who's really at the center of the story, but it has far-reaching ramifications. Something we always want to be aware of and we want to keep in the back of our mind is the nature of our culture and its insistence that we are somehow the center of the story. We live in a rather self-centered culture that encourages us to view ourselves as the good guy, as the hero, and we see this play out in a lot of different ways. 
Oftentimes you can look at the kinds of phrases that we use often in our culture. There's a lot of examples, you do you, live your truth. The one that I hear most often is follow your heart. You know, follow your heart. Sometimes there's a tagline to that, follow your heart, it won't lead you astray. Follow your heart, it knows the way. Follow your heart, you won't regret it. And it's something that's said by very well-meaning, well-intentioned people. But it's this idea that somehow my heart intrinsically knows what's best or what's good or what's right. That kind of assumes a level of infallibility as if I'm to some extent incapable of evil, which is just simply not the truth of anybody. We're not all demons yearning for destruction, but we're not all angels who want world peace either. We're rather self-centered individuals when you get right down to it. You take an affair, for example. My heart might yearn for an affair. There may be somebody, and I, and I may have genuine feelings of attraction or love, and I may justify it in any number of ways. I just feel so full. I've never been happier. It just feels so right. And it may be genuine. I may really feel that way. It may satisfy my heart. But that doesn't make that act any less destructive to a family or hurtful to children or devastating to the betrayed spouse. That doesn't somehow make that act any less, you know, willing to disregard institutions and and covenants and integrity and things of that nature. I can have all these genuine feelings and it still not be good. My heart oftentimes yearns for things that are not worthwhile. Follow your heart is a rather self-centered view of the world. Again, well-intentioned. But if you want to get down to it, it echoes our society's tendency to focus on ourselves. And if that same central focus comes into our faith, if we start to view ourselves as the center character of God's work and God's story and God's good news, it's going to have far-reaching outcomes, or influence rather, on how we worship and who we worship. You know, if the central focus is us, our focus is no longer going to be on elevating Christ. And maybe a, a good example of, of this kind of mentality and this relationship in the real world, we can look at, again, the world of sports. I don't know why all the illustrations this week come from athletics. I am not a sports guy, as many of you know, but it just happens to be the case. Antonio Brown is a name that a lot of you may be familiar with. Uh, he's been in the news the last few weeks at the center of some controversy where in the middle of a game, he had, uh, dis- we'll say, disagreement with his coach, tore his jersey off, threw it into the crowd, you know, exited the stadium, got in an Uber, and left. Uh, and that was just one in a long line of antics from Antonio Brown's career. Now, he's managed to burn bridges with four different teams over the course of five or six different seasons at this point. There, there's a pattern here. Now, football is a team sport. I think we all can recognize that. And individuals are going to have shining moments, but at the end of the day, it's about the team, the team functioning together, the team focusing on a common goal. And when we understand ourselves as part of the team, then the team is what we're going to try to elevate. But Antonio Brown seems to view himself a little differently, as if he's the central focus. And you can see that in his words in an interview from 2019, an interview he did with ESPN. He said, I don't even have to play football if I don't want. I don't even need the game. I don't need to prove nothing to anyone. If they want to play, they're going to play my rules. If not, I don't need to play. You can kind of see where the focus is there. It's not so much on the team and elevating the team so much as it is on Antonio and elevating Antonio, which is why his behavior both on and off the field has been all about elevating 
Antonio. And that's what happens when we misunderstand where the real focus is. It's going to spill out in other parts of our lives. If we misunderstand ourselves as the central work and focus of God's story and what he's doing, if it's all about us, then we're no longer going to be focused on elevating Christ the way that we ought. And I see this play out from time to time in conversations that I have with people. Colin and I actually talk about this in his work with the youth. This is one of the, the great challenges that this generation, this upcoming generation faces as far as discipleship and faith go is this pull from our culture to focus more and more on ourselves. It shows up in, in sentiments like this. I know scripture teaches this, but I just don't agree with that. Or I know scripture teaches that, but I, I don't think we should have to live that way. And I don't try to discourage exploration or genuine questions or anything like that. But in sentiments like this, there is less emphasis on, I know what God has told his people, and more emphasis on, but I. I'm concerned about my opinion, my judgments, my, my assertions of, of what this might mean. Can you imagine, by the way, if you had that same idea or that attitude with your parents growing up? Yeah, somebody's like, oh, geez. Right? Mom, Dad, I know it's your house that you bought. I know you pay the bills and you put the food on the table, that you birthed me, that you have sacrificed more than I could ever imagine to raise me. I understand all that and that these are your rules. But I, I don't know, I just don't agree with them. I don't think I should have to live this way, Mom and Dad. What's going to happen? Yeah. On a good day, they'll laugh it off. On a bad day, it's like, all right, fine, go get your own house, right? See ya. No, but yeah, we wouldn't do that with our parents, and yet sometimes because of the culture that we live in and this more self-centered focus, sometimes we think that it's okay to do when it comes to God. God, I know that you are the creator of heaven and earth. I know that you spoke life into existence, that reality is maintained and functions simply because of your will, and I know all of that. I know you have sacrificed more for me than I could ever imagine or, or, or even dream of comprehending. I know that, and I know what you ask of me, but I, <laughs> I, I just don't agree with you, divine creator. <laughs> it's a little arrogant. It's a little self-centered, but that's what happens whenever we misunderstand where the real focus of God's concern and God's work and God's story and God's victory really are. We get to benefit with the forgiveness of sins. We get to benefit from life eternal because of Jesus. We get to benefit from this healed communion with our Creator. We benefit immensely, but we ain't rich, church. He's rich. And we benefit from that because of our relationship to Him in faith. Paul, the guy who writes our, our letter in Romans, he actually talks about the nature of faith in the same passage that we're reading from. If we were to look at chapter 1, verse 5, he says, through him, we received grace and apostleship, meaning that through Christ, Paul and, and his friends, they were given a mission and the power to complete that mission. And the mission was to call all the Gentiles, or all the people of the nations, to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Obedience that comes from faith. In other words, faith is not just merely a, a mental agreement with some notions or ideas. And faith is not even an emotional belief in this story of what Jesus has done, but rather genuine faith results in life change. We call it obedience. 
in that context of our families growing up, mom, dad, I know it's your house. I know it's, you pay the bills. I know that you've sacrificed so much. I know these are your rules. And you know, I really don't agree with them. But I will honor you and live under them anyway. There's an obedience that comes from that relationship of love. And in that same way, our relationship of love and fellowship with the Father, we may not always understand why he asks what he asks. He may not always under, we may not always understand why Scripture teaches the things that it teaches, but there is a trust, a faith that he asks us to possess because of the gospel story, because he sent Jesus, because Jesus died, because he was raised, because he is victorious, because of his promise to come again, because of this good news of God, he says, will you trust me enough? To follow me. Paul, who we reference, who wrote Romans, he also wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. And everything that we're talking about here in our message this morning, it gets summarized in a beautiful passage in that, that book, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. And he died, meaning Jesus, he died for all, that those who live, meaning those who have accepted him and in faith live through him, he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In other words, we no longer live for the but I. We no longer live as if we are the central focus of the stories, if we're the good guy, we're the hero, we're what everything's all about, but rather we put Jesus on the throne of our lives and we say, I live for you and I follow you. And as we do that, we become beneficiaries of this amazing, blessed gift we experience the presence of God. We experience the forgiveness of sins. We experience the power of his resurrection. We experience that fundamental change within us, not because we're focused on ourselves, but because we are focused on following him ever more faithfully. That is some good news. It's not about us. In fact, that's part of what makes the good news so incredibly good, is that it's not about us, but rather it's about him. Some, some uncomfortable truth maybe for us to wrestle with this morning. Despite what our culture may insist upon, none of us have what it takes to be the good guy or the hero or the main focus of our story. We may have some resistance to that idea, but the fact of the matter is we, we just don't have the moral qualifications to measure up to that. If you need an example, let me, let me ask you, does this sound familiar to anybody? In the heat of anger or at the height of frustration, I have said things that were unfair, or were overly critical, or were hurtful. And I didn't want to say those things. I don't value those things. In fact, they are contrary to my values. I don't even think it was good to say, but I said it anyway. Anybody resonate with that? And that's just our speech. Maybe we could talk about generosity. I, I value generosity. I believe that being generous towards people is a virtuous thing. And yet I'm sure if we all were to think back, we could think of a time where, where maybe we held on to something a little self-centeredly or a little selfishly when there was an opportunity to share and be generous. Or honesty. I think we'd all agree honesty is a virtuous thing. And yet I'm sure we could all think of a time where we were less than honest or, or relied on some half-truths when it was convenient. We can all think back over our lives and say, I know that this is the correct and right road, and yet I walked this one. We lack the moral integrity to measure up to even our own conscience, let alone the high moral standards of God. 
we lack the moral integrity to be, is that what the good guy does? Is that what the hero of the story does? But that's part of what makes the good news so good. It's not about you or I. (laughs) We're not the hero or the center focus of the story. It's about him and what he has done, his moral integrity and his ability to measure up. Whereas Paul phrases in our passage, it's about his righteousness. Let's look at at verse 4 of our passage once again. It says, And who through the Spirit of holiness, talking about Jesus, was appointed Son of God in power by or because of his, or by his resurrection from the dead. The Holy Spirit, the righteousness of God, it found Jesus innocent. He was executed on that cross as somebody who was sinful, as somebody who was guilty, and yet remember when God looked at his life, he found no wrong? He really did measure up. Like he really did meet the high moral standards of God. He really did live consistent with his own conscience When God looked at the life of Jesus, he could find no reason for condemnation. So he raised him from the dead. That was the evidence of Christ's truthfulness. That was the evidence of his righteousness. And the beautiful, beautiful story of the gospel is that if we place our faith in him and put him on that throne, we get to share in his righteousness. We get to share in his perfection. We get to be covered over his upstanding character. We get to be covered with his upstanding character. In other words, it's not about you and I and our ability to be enough or our ability to measure up. We ain't rich, church, remember? He's rich. We ain't righteous. But the good news is he is. And through our relationship of faith in him, we are covered by that righteousness. We become beneficiaries because he's the one this is all about. Here's another uncomfortable truth that we can wrestle with. As much as we like to pretend that we are the main character of the story, that we got it all together, that we're really something, or that we're in control of our lives, we're not. We lack the ability. We lack the power to be the good guy or the main character in this story. We like to feel this way and think this way until something in life comes around and humbles us. And that may be one of the most beneficial lessons of the last two years is humility. Because, you know, we're all living our lives, things are going pretty good, and then this virus shows up and begins rampaging across the planet. There's nothing we can do to stop it. And we throw everything we can at it. We shut down our borders, we lock down our communities. Some of our most brilliant minds innovate with new technologies and create new vaccines. And without undermining any of those efforts, because they have saved thousands of lives, I think we could all agree we haven't even come close to stopping this virus. At most, I think we're learning to live with it and coming to the realization that maybe that's the best we could hope for. But when you stop and think about it, maybe that's what we should have always realized because we tried to out-engineer nature and we tried to legislate nature and we tried to control nature as if we thought we could actually do that when in reality, this, this whole experience maybe has shown us we're very limited creatures We are at the mercy of nature. We're at the mercy of time and age. We're at the mercy of entropy, of governments, of social pressures. There are so many forces in existence that are so much bigger than we are. We are really quite fragile and frail creatures. We don't lack the ability or the power to be the main character in the story. And sometimes that's very concerning for people. But let me tell you, that's actually some good news. 
Because there is somebody who is in control and who is in power. We actually read about it in that verse, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Let's look at it again. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection of the dead. That's a really important phrase, the Son of God in power. I want to unpack that a little bit. Jesus was always the divine Son of God incarnate, even when he lived among us as a man, even when he was vulnerable to nature and age and entropy and everything. But after the resurrection, the situation changed because now he was the Son of God in power. He was no longer the the heir to the throne. He was the one on the throne. Or you might think about it as he was no longer president-elect. He was commander-in-chief. The victory was given to him. All authority in heaven and earth given to him. The name above every name given to him, as we read in Philippians. He was, excuse me, victorious. Through his death, he had undone the tragedy of sin and its grip. Through his resurrection, he had undone the power and the fear of death. Through his ascension to the throne, he had put the stranglehold around the kingdom of evil and its dominion. And in his return, he will finish the job entirely. He actually is enough. Like He's not subject to nature or age or time or entropy or governments or social pressures. He really is in control. He really is sovereign. That's what we see in the good news. And that is good news for you and I. We're incapable of being all of those things. But we don't have to be because he is. We ain't rich, church. He's rich. Neither are we in power. But the good news is he is. And through a life of faith, we become beneficiaries of everything he has done and everything he has yet to accomplish. We become beneficiaries of the kingdom of God, beneficiaries of God's good news, the gospel in Jesus Christ. So what does this matter? Why, what, how do I apply this on Monday, right? Because theology is great, but if it doesn't make a difference in my life, what's, what's the point? Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Stop trying to be the hero of the story. Stop trying to be the central character of all of this, the way that our our culture often encourages to, and realize there is a better option. Sometimes people are so racked with guilt in life, or they wrestle with the past and what they have done or what they should have done, things they can't undo. And we are racked with this because we lack the moral ability to be the hero of the story, and yet we insist upon being such. That's not what we were called to. We were given this hero, this someone who took our sins, that took our wrongdoings, that took our shame, that nailed them to the cross and has clothed us with his righteousness and his innocence. He has extended grace and mercy and patience and salvation to us. And we get to benefit from all of that and live with the peace that comes from all of that when we put him on that throne in our lives. When we live a faith that doesn't just agree with some ideas, but a faith that follows in obedience and walks with him in this world. When he is king, we don't have to be. And there is joy and there's peace that comes from that. If you're someone who wrestles with guilt, wrestles with the past, wrestles with your sin, wrestles with what could have been, should have been, might have been, stop trying to be the central character and just revel in the joy that comes from following the one who is. Sometimes we're not so much concerned about what was 
just as much as we're afraid of what is to come. And sometimes in life, we are filled with fear or dread or concern or anxiety because we lack the power to control what may come, and yet we insist upon living as someone who can control what may come. We try to be the hero, and we plan. I'm not saying don't plan. Be smart. Be intelligent. But understand that there's so much in this world that is outside of your control, but it's not beyond his. And there's a comfort and a peace and a satisfaction that comes from being found in his story instead of being the center of our own. There is a contentment that comes from putting him on the throne of our lives and merely relishing the benefits of his victory instead of trying to achieve our own victory through our own meager efforts. If you are someone who is filled with fear or concern or anxiety because you don't know what's going to happen in this world and everything's frightening and it seems out of control, take a deep breath and remember who's on the throne. Be found in his story. Make him the center, central character. Because he is what this is all about. When we read Philippians, we read, he's given the name that is above every name. That includes mine. And that includes yours. Live as such. And enjoy the benefits of the gospel. Because we ain't rich, church. He's rich. We ain't righteous. He's righteous. We ain't in power. He's in power. And all of that is some really, really good news. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that we would be found in Christ, that our hearts, that our minds, that our lives would be found following after him, exalting him, honoring him, instead of ourselves. That as we humble ourselves beneath him and his mighty name and his work, I pray that we would taste the benefits of the gospel, that your spirit would fill us, we find the contentment that comes through him and the peace that comes through him and his promises. That the joy of the Lord would be within us as we realize we have been given forgiveness. We have been given life. We have been given a new beginning with you, not because we've measured up or that we ever could measure up, but because he has. So let us honor Christ in all that we say and all that we do and all that we think and in all of our relationships and our actions, our pursuits and our dreams, let us elevate him as the center of the story and let us find our place in the glory of your gospel about your son and his work. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. As we move into a time of communion, I want to focus our hearts specifically on Jesus' work on the cross. The whole gospel story from beginning to end is that he came, he died, he's raised, and he's coming back again. But at this point in our service, we often center on his work on the cross. Because he did die. He laid down his life. It wasn't fair. It wasn't just. But he did it with love and concern for you and I. And even though he was innocent and he was righteous, he took our sin and our guilt upon him. He took our pasts upon him. And in exchange, he gave us his innocence. And he gave us the fruits of his upstanding life. That we might taste the goodness and the mercy of God. We may not be the central focus of the character, but we were the central focus of his concern and his love. And that's what we celebrate at communion time. In just a few moments, there's going to be a couple of emblems that come around you. There are two cups stacked on top of each other. And the bottom cup is a wafer. And the top cup is a little bit of juice. 
Those emblems represent the broken body of Jesus and the blood that was shed for us. And together, they remind us of the incomparable love of God, the extent that he was willing to go that we could be rescued and saved and be with him. So as you partake of these emblems, I would encourage you to turn your hearts in praise to the Lord to give thanks, to relish his love, to find yourself in this gospel story of what he has done, to be caught up in the train of his glory, and to just say thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for your willingness to be faithful to the Father's plan, for the love you had for lost sheep like us, that you would seek after us and save us, even at the cost of your own life. We praise you for the mercy that has come to us, for the new beginnings that are given to us through you, for the life and the promises that certainly will come because of you. You've evidenced evidenced the truthfulness of these in your resurrection. And so we rely on you fully, wholeheartedly, and expectedly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.